everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise at the end of each episode along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Which you better do. <laughs> a little better aggressive. We decide sorry. Yeah, sorry. on the official ratings and rankings. Trying to be chill here. For every <laughs> film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for uh, coming up on two years. We have over 40 or so bonus episodes uh, waiting for you on Patreon if you haven't made the jump yet. Definitely oh, yeah. consider doing that. Speaking of which, a lot of people are making the jump lately, so yeah. if, if I miss we your... We appreciate y'all. If I miss your name, feel free to yell at me and I will make sure to hit it on the next one, but we have so many, I think, uh, I don't remember what the last set was and wasn't, <laughs> so I'm just gonna start... A good problem to have, I think. So here we go. Uh, sorry that I have to go through everyone's name so quickly this week. Usually we don't have this many to do, so... Uh, <laughs> Rory T. Donahue, Riley James, uh, Anna Whitholz, Steven, just Steven, uh, Michael... Gaxiola, Jason Tusaltos, uh, Woof Dog. What's up? <laughs> Love it. What's up, Woof Dog? Uh, Will Kincaid, John Hoopenthal, Jansen Green, Angelo Palmarino, Edward, Colin Estes. All right. I think right. that that wraps it up. Sorry you guys. if I butchered any of those. A couple of them were a little bit complicated. Uh, but feel free to correct dog. me in the comments as well. You know, I'll, I can take the hit on that one. But yes, yeah, so thanks to everyone becoming patrons, getting all your bonus Patreon episodes. Uh, that's the one plug. The other plug for the week, as always, if you guys are listening on iTunes, make sure to give us a good old rating and review over there. It uh, helps us find new listeners, and we appreciate that as well. Mm. All right. Those are your plugs. Uh, welcome back. Uh, as always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me is my obvious regular co-host over here. Jamie Miller. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you guys, free listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have had special guest Rick Kane on the show, who brought with him Hong Kong horror comedy. Some great ones. Those were so much fun. Uh, Mr. Vampire from 1985 and The Seventh Curse from 1986. Uh, one sort of like a bit of a Jackie Chan kung fu film yeah. meets sort of like a slapstick uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, but involving hopping vampires. <laughs> yeah. So a little a little bit of like a, uh, a sort of horror for- folklore there for Hong Kong. Uh, and then The Seventh Curse... Uh, kind of indescribable. Yeah, it's uh, just, it goes so many places. We still don't think that we believe that we've seen that movie and we <laughs> talked about it for like 45 minutes yeah. on the show. We don't so know if it actually exists. I'm not even going to try, but if you ever wondered what sort of like Kung Fu meets Indiana Jones meets Lucio Fulci 
meets Rambo meets <laughs> this is uh, no exaggeration. Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, I'm not making any of this up. These are all things that we dropped as influences on that episode. Yeah. So if that interests you at all, The Seventh Curse, 1986. Again, that episode was uh, two weeks ago. Any podcast listener of choice, it's available on. But last week, speaking of Lucio Fulci, we did an entire episode on the man, the myth, the legend. We did his Gates of Hell trilogy, three movies, City of the Living Dead from 1980 and from 1981, The Beyond and House so by the Cemetery. All very good. All very but the good. Beyond Jamie and especially. I, that was a mother load of an episode. I think yeah. it was about two hours long. Yeah, it's close so, to it if it's not. Uh, uh, we hope you guys really enjoyed that one. And that one is, uh, again, patreon.com slash podcast. That was the bonus episode for all the patron listeners last week. But this week, we have a very special guest on with us here who has brought uh, two, I would, I would say these are pretty sleazy films, honestly. Oh yeah. Um, and that guest is, uh, now Maddie, you might have to correct me on your title here, but film, film programmer at (laughs) the, uh, film at Lincoln center in New York. Correct. That works. Yeah. Technically my (laughs) title is programming assistant, but, Ah. uh, I think that the umbrella term applies. All good. But yes, Maddie I, uh, has all kinds of fire hot takes on Twitter. Also, <laughs> sometimes a uh, speaker on the film comment podcast. I've heard her a couple times on there. Nice. Also, sometimes interviews directors. Like I saw you recently did the Ari Aster director's cut of Midsummer, which Very looked like cool. a lot of fun. Yes, that was a fantastic uh, (laughs) Q&A. Awesome. Well, I wish I could have been there for that. Um, Either way, we're very glad to have you here, Maddie. Um, And as it goes, we have the guests bring the two episodes on with them. So what are the two films you brought with you today and why do they pair together? So I'm very excited by this pairing. Um, First of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Of course. Um, So the first film, going sort of in in chronological order, I think makes the most sense. Um, The first of the two films is Peeping Tom, the uh, 1960 film directed by British filmmaker Michael Powell of Powell and Pressburger fame. Um, And uh, it's, uh, it's sleazy in the sense that it's about a murderous voyeur who uh, is who, who enjoys murdering women and filming them as they die and then watching his films back again later. Yeah, that sounds pretty sleazy, I'll be honest with <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, right? Um, <laughs> I, I thought it kind of fit the bill. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's sort of, and in its time it was very controversial, it was very um, sort of loathed by critics and uh, I, I believe censored in various ways. Uh, but then in the subsequent years, it gained a cult following, uh, most prominently uh, Martin Scorsese of uh, Marvel is not cinema fame. <laughs> and um, apparently, yeah, apparently, apparently Peeping Tom is cinema and very good cinema, uh, according to Scorsese. So, um, Agreed. yeah, now it's highly regarded. Awesome. Um, yeah. So that was the first of the two. Uh, and the second was the 1999 Joel Shoemaker film, Eight uh, Millimeter, starring Nicolas Cage, Joaquin Phoenix, James Gandolfini, uh, various other, uh, oh, Peter Stormare, of course, very important. Very uh, important role for him. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, he steals the show completely. He's, 
he possibly wins the movie, but, um, <laughs> but yeah. And so that's, uh, obviously a very different day and age, uh, in terms of its production context, um, almost 40 years later, but it is similarly about, uh, filming death, uh, where the dying person is a scantily clad woman. Um, and so basically, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's about a detective who's hired to track down the sources of a possible snuff film. Uh, and it sort of sends him down a rabbit hole of bad people. Bad vibes and, all around. <laughs> bad vibes. Yeah, yeah bad juju. Sleaze. And, yeah. And, and it's like following the money deeper into hardcore porn hell, basically. Yeah, and both, um, both films deal directly with the idea of, of, of snuff footage and the sort of like ethics of filming people in situations like that so yeah yeah um, i would say that peeping tom may be a little bit more interested in the intellectual conversation the aesthetic conversation around that eight millimeter a little trashier but that's what makes <laughs> yeah. it good so that's yeah. what that's what yeah. makes it a good pairing so um yeah no i think that's as good as any intros we're gonna get so i think we're gonna jump right into it right now awesome. we are going to talk peeping tom sweet let's do it awesome so put that camera away there is no future for anyone who tries to befriend him. He invades the privacy of innocent people till the piercing eyes of his camera meet the terrified eyes of his victims. And with a compulsion akin to madness, he shoots the final fearful scene. Right, we are talking Peeping Tom, the 1960 British psychological horror thriller film directed by Michael Powell. Um, as Mehdi, uh mentioned at the top of the show, uh, the one half of the Powell and Pressburger um, directing duo, which for you, Jamie, I know we're still Jamie's still working through the canon of yeah. film. Yes, I but am. they oh, are yes. very yes. famous. The baby to the show. Very famous British directing duo. Um, they did films such as The Red Shoes from 1948, which you might have heard. Yeah, also, I've watched Black, this that one. Black Narcissus. Uh, they did uh, a matter. Uh, of life and death. Oh my God, they did so much. They did goddamn Canterbury Tale from 1944. I'm pretty sure. Uh, either way, very uh, prestigious British directing. That, duo. Yeah, I was gonna say it seemed more like those were kind of classical uh, prestigious films, and then this one was definitely a left turn for this for this guy. <laughs> yes, he went solo for this venture because okay. clearly he had a, a an interest in this and. Uh, Sort of and it re regret killed his career. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Wow. That's the crazy thing. Did he, he ever get it back going after this, or was it like this is too offensive? We got to get rid of this guy. He made a like couple of very small films, and he had a very hard time putting the money together to do it because of this mm. controversy. Oh. And he basically uh, was done by like the early seventies, like ten years after this. Wow, nothing. And anymore. after having so many impactful films too. Yeah. Right? Well, like, later he was named like as a duo. They were named. Uh, uh, they were up there with Hitchcock in, in, in British film. Um, so yeah, this this film basically killed his career. He went out on a line because he was passionate about doing this one himself. And uh, what, what is it that like? 
differentiates this one from like a Hitchcock horror thriller that that made people more like this is offensive? Was it was it the scantily clad women? Uh, that's a really that's actually a really interesting question, mm-hmm. um, especially because this movie's made in the same year as Psycho. So right, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where I was in the mindset because I know that Psycho came out this year, and so I was like, what was so offensive about this one compared to Psycho. Well, I, I will say, and this is a good place to actually start, because sure. the, the film specifically, it's about a sort of loner photographer and also a full-time focus puller at a film studio named Mark Lewis, no relation. Uh, <laughs> he takes racy photographs of, of, of women, and it sort of unfurls as the plot does that there is sort of a background in that he is filming some sort of documentary about the nature of fear um, that he is sort of uh, sort of hereditarily passed down from his own father's experiences. Um, And the thing that's unique in comparison to this, because you're right, both 1960, both about serial killers in this and psycho. Um, but psycho is both not with like parent issues as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Both, both kind of Freudian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but one is from the point of view of the killer and wants you to sort of, if not sort of sympathize, at least sort of pitifully empathize and come to an understanding with the killer and also wants you to, as a film watcher, we've talked mm-hmm. about this a lot on the show, talking about Brian De Palma, but the idea mm-hmm. of uh, characters who are voyeurs are a lot of the time very good bridges to implicate audience members who are also watching these characters' lives. Right. So all of a sudden you have what is the point of view of a voyeur who is also graphically murdering people, or at least graphically for 1960. We watch it now, and I, I imagine British people going, good heavens! Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> this is the most, like, this is this could get a G rating. Like, you yeah, could, you could right. pass this past censor board so easily now. Um, but I think the main thing, honestly, is just, is just point of view. You yeah, can tell yeah. that Powell, you know, in some way identifies with this photographer being a filmmaker, and you know, having questions on sort of the ethics of filming people, and you yeah. know, the but merged with like the urge. I love that. There's a great quote late in the film that one of the guys says about the morbid urge to gaze, and you can tell that Powell identifies with that, even if Powell is hopefully not a serial killer of women. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas Psycho, again, not from that point of view. It's kind of actually there's sort of an unfurling plot where that mystery is uncovered. It's a, it's, okay. it's different. I feel like it's just... Whereas it's, you're, you're right with him at the very beginning. You right. Know that it, it's very killer. uncomfortable yeah. in that way that POV serial killer movies can be, especially when they would go on in the 80s. You get things like Maniac. You get things right, like... Right. Um, uh, what is a Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? Films like this. Like This actually has more in common with those films, even yeah, if definitely. it isn't as graphically violent. It's just, again, that identifi- identification with a protagonist... Um, that, you know, has interests that people who like films probably also have. (laughs) Right. Yes, and it's something that Hitchcock used a little bit, like in Psycho, like in the shower scene. You Mm -hmm. see the murder from um, Norman Bates' perspective, but it's used to punctuate as opposed to, like, being the substance of the film. So it's like instead of the whole film being from the perspective of Norman Bates or adjacent to his perspective, it's only in these moments that are intended to sort of shock and take you out of the... The, the story, right. you know. Whereas this, literally the entire movie is watching this guy, you know, d- do this urge that he has, which is to to kill women and then record that fear right before their deaths. So right. it's like you don't have a moment to kind of 
settle into you know the the mystery. There really is no mystery in, in a sense. There there yeah, is exactly. for the other characters, but not for us. So. To the point, to the extent where like this movie is very interested in psychoanalyzing him and and delving into the sources of his psychosexual trauma and how right. that made him psychotic. Whereas um, Norman Bates, you get a little bit of that, but it's left very mysterious and it's left sort of. Like, oh, we don't even really want to know because it's too horrible to contemplate, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I and so it, it kind of sucks for Powell because I think Powell caught the short end because I think what he's, I mean, I'm not going to say anything bad about Psycho on this show, but I, I, I think <laughs> what Powell is doing is much thornier and more complicated of a subject. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and something that is much harder to pull off. Yeah. Um, so the fact that he actually kind of does for a guy who, you know, previously, you know, wasn't experienced in a lot of horror avenues. I mean, the visual language of this, you know, even if just we're going to say this is some of the earliest uh, sort of like patient zero visual vocabulary of uh, a lot of POV slasher stuff that we are talking about. And then also you have literal serial killer films that follow this model of following yeah. kind of like the day to day life of you know people in in these situations so um the fact that he could basically birth <laughs> a very specific type of horror genre at the same before it you know it doesn't it doesn't exist at this point um but also make something clearly the guy is an accomplished filmmaker um in, in his own regard and there's like beautiful shots in this and oh, yeah. you know, these amazing sort of like it looks like he did like matte painting work on this with some of like sort of like the late night city streets and stuff like that. Um, yeah. Well, you can really, unbelievable. You can see, totally see the lineage with like the red shoes too, like the expressionist yes. use of color. It, like maybe especially seeing Norma or sorry, Maura Shearer dancing uh, evokes that. Which is horrifying because oh she's obviously the lead of the red shoes. And a lot of people know her for that oh, ballet film. That's cool. I, so you're, so you're watching the sequence with this like really prestigious actress doing these dances and then you watch her, you know, uh, murdered. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually really horrible. Cause I mean, I, I haven't seen a lot of Powell, but I've seen the red shoes. I've seen black Narcissus. I've seen, I've seen a couple of the major ones and being able to pick up on he was intentionally taking an actress from one of their famous films and murdering wow. her as the subject of his film. Wow. Like that's, that's, that's like, like putting the, your thumb in the eye of critics who probably liked your work. Yeah, yeah. So I understand sure. a little bit why some of them were turned off, even if they ended up, you know, being mostly wrong. That's interesting that you say that too, because just me, I don't have as much background in, in, and knowledge mm -hmm. of these films, especially old Hollywood and kind of the, they call it like the golden era, I guess, or something like that. Kind of the, the uh, you know, the, the, the giant musical numbers and all that <laughs> stuff. And what, yeah. it was very cool to see uh, him set that up where it kind of came off as like a musical thing. You know, she's dancing, she's going around, there's choreography mm -hmm. with her. And then he's seen... setting up a death. So it's just, it was interesting to watch this kind of like, here's one aspect of it, the horror, where you have the killer setting her up so that he can have the perfect shot to before he kills her. Right. But then having also like a director. <laughs> yeah, right. But then having the the just the Hollywood actress do the 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 musical number kind of thing while he's setting up her death. I thought that was really cool and interesting. Yeah, it's a bizarre scene. It's like a it's a um in some ways it's the most disturbing scene in the movie, I think, because it yeah. is such a it, it's really it is implicating the film director very much. Like you're right, it's it's a scene where he is playing the director, and we are watching a scene be staged, and 
he is about to, uh, you know, do his thing, which is <laughs> to put her on camera and kill her. And it's, it's basically, it's sort of Powell putting a spotlight on himself and saying, look, I, I am identifying with my protagonist who is a psychopath. Yeah. Right. Someone, yeah. someone who, who orchestrates, you know, situations right because yeah. that's, yeah. that's what the, the suspense of that sequence is is that it, it's amazing because the opening scene of this is a pov of him killing a prostitute right immediately yeah. setting up that there is a um you know there is a sexual desire behind the camera um for him to see people's fears um and and to try and capture i guess sort of like sheer terror is what he's after um Mm -hmm. so then you have that in your head when you're watching the sequence where you know to her he's just you know she's i think she's sort of like an extra on the set so Mm -hmm. he's trying to give her a moment where she gets to feel like a star where he gets to record her on the big studio camera she gets the full set to herself you feel that he you know he he seems on the surface like a pretty gentle like you know a, b- a bit shy but like uh yeah. you know like a like a pretty nice guy that was something i liked about his performance too is he's he's very timid and shy and whatnot but you can still see his transformation like the closer he gets to the murder oh, yeah. he starts to just shut off he like starts he becomes sweating, yeah. his eyes go wide yeah <laughs> like he just he starts becoming like he detaches himself and uh that i thought was a great aspect well there, of his there is that anticipation uh which is which is interesting because in that scene he's also building anticipation for the audience mm-hmm. so there, there's this yeah. weird connectivity again that i feel like he not only has not only does he identify with the character he uses kind of like the power of these suspense sequences to get the audience to identify with him a little bit because you're sitting there yeah. waiting for him yes. to do the murder you and know. that scene goes on forever and it's so yeah. nice she's so nice she's yeah. just dancing around having a great Huge time smile, she feels so like a star yeah. and then he just inches slowly closer and closer and then the blade comes out yeah. and the look on her face it's and horrible. even and even ha- him having uh giving her the dialogue like this is what you're scared of right now. Yeah. As he's approaching her, just be like, imagine uh, that there's a man with a knife and he wants to kill you, you and he'll kill you with Weird. regardless of the consequences <laughs> as he's doing it. And, and so you and, have and, this and, direction. And that's so slow too. He talks right. like that for like a minute or two before he even pulls out the knife and everything. Yeah. So. And then Which by have, the way is on the he, end of a tripod. He's getting off on it. Yeah. 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 yeah Which no, is where that real sleaze comes too. in. <laughs> really? Right, well, it's like, Yeah. No, go ahead. Well, I think the, no, the fact that he, so he reminds me of Peter Lorre, um, who uh, is also famous for playing a murderer in an old movie, uh, most notably M, where he plays mm. a child killer. And like, I think he's just got this quality where you, he's so magnetic uh, on the screen that as he's building up to his murder and he's full of this anticipation and this sort of excitement, you, the viewer, are both, afraid for the victim to be but also swept up in his excitement and very much that that anticipation is sort of Mm -hmm. um you're just waiting for for the payoff for the gratification and you sort of um it's very uh it creates a kind of identification that i think is is kind of unusual actually yeah, well, and I, I honestly think that this is what upset critics so much when they yeah, were watching. Yeah, I think like, I don't want to feel this way. Yeah, get this right. out of here. <laughs> I've, I, but, but again, all he's doing is bringing up, you know, sort of like the the ethics of reducing people to images on a screen like this. So again, yeah. and uh, which is what's so sort of interesting about him taking 
Because the thing that shocked me the most watching this for the first time, I would say, honestly, is how seriously he takes the psychology of this character. Yeah. Because yeah. because a lot of the time and a lot of sort of like worse serial killer movies down the line would kind of use psychology as just kind of like a cynical means to the end of being like, that's why he kills people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right. But, but this one takes it very emotionally seriously in a yeah. way that I you don't usually see from these kinds of films, which is and, and again, to be kind of like the inception of this kind of film at the same time to do that is is pretty amazing um but there's a subplot here with sort of like a a tenant that he rents to that he is genuinely interested in as 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 a person and he kind of sees her as a bit of kind of like an out from his interest where he he doesn't want to see her scared he likes her He, he sees her as an actual person and she even convinces him for the first time to go out with her and not bring his camera with him when usually he's bringing his camera everywhere like his job is with him all the time yeah. A lot of the time he goes straight from the studio with his personal camera to, you know, sort of like the, the, the local, uh, I think it's like the like convenience store where they have like the young women living upstairs where he can take racy photos of them for yeah. like the, the guys to like buy at the local store for like the creeps yeah, to buy. It's actually a creepy Playboy scene when that one guy comes up and he's just like, you got anything else? And the guy like pulls <laughs> out the book and yeah. he starts flipping through it. And I was like, damn, this dude's going ham. He's like, how much <laughs> for the like, whole I'll set? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and so I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, like they, they show you that that's his day to day life is on set working with actresses where he doesn't have like a real relationship with them. He has a professional relationship with them. And then these other women he has professional relationships with. And he finally has a personal relationship with one. He starts putting the camera away. He doesn't. And And I notice as soon as he does, he feels almost like a relief. Like it's, it seems like his character kind of doesn't change as soon as she grabs his camera and puts it somewhere and they go on the date. He's got a big smile. He almost (laughs) seems like he's less timid, less shy. You know, it almost, it's, it's definitely connected. Well, yeah, it's, it's amazing that it, it kind of like ties a sexual urge to capture this sort of documentary that he's doing. But at the same time, he's still obviously very clearly traumatized by his father doing it to him yeah. and yeah. You know, the uh, by the acts themselves. So, And I think his love for Helen is like, that's in, in some ways, that's another thing that makes the film disturbing, I think, because it humanizes him and it yes. makes it, it shows that he's capable of love and that he's capable of enough self-awareness that he knows that when he sees fear on a woman then he's overcome by his you know fetish or whatever it is and his obsession and sort of is set down a path where inevitably he will need to kill her and he doesn't and he knows that that destroys these women that he kills and he if he's attached to this one woman in particular he doesn't want to destroy her and so like that struggle within him makes him seem more human than like say a Norman Bates who is just a psycho who just wants to kill Janet Lee, you know? Yeah. So Yeah, like know. it's it's more uncomfortable for you to go, oh, like yeah, this this guy actually does he he has an ability to, you know, um or or a desire to not do this anymore. There is an out yeah. for him possibly. You don't know if he'll right. actually get there or not. And it seems a little right. again 
Uh, I do like that Powell doesn't really give him an easy out. He, yeah, right. he, not at all. No, well, we'll say by the end of this film that he does not have any kind of uh, comfortable <laughs> out. Incredibly I, I actually, depressing. I actually, yeah, it's very bleak. It's very depressing, which I think is, you know, the, the fact that he was able to stick out and hold that ending is also true to the character. Again, oh, yeah. which yes. is which is uh, yes. what gave me confusing because again, he does identify with this guy, but at the same time, he goes, this guy, he does not at all make excuses for this guy, which is the difference is that he, right. he 100% acknowledges as Maddie was saying that he is destroying women and he, he knows that. Yeah. And, uh, it's just, it's also tied into, um, this sort of like weird Freudian relationship he has with his sort of psychoanalytic father who mm-hmm. constantly filmed him and did trying to on put him. fear into him. And yeah. I, I, th- I gotta be honest. I, I thought it was a little funny when the, he started playing the footage for her because it was just like the guy, he, the father's like throwing lizards on him in oh. bed and scaring him. And I was like, dude, this dad's just a prankster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing bad going on here. Yeah. But then, but then it does get a, a little bit, goose. it gets a little bit more grisly as he starts sort of like, trying to film the kid's reaction to his mother's death and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, which is really yeah. horrible. The whole it's like, video to the yeah. funeral. <laughs> like, good Lord, it, dude. Yeah. It's just like, dude, that like the, the, he should have privacy in that, in, in that moment. And he even talks about <laughs> that. He doesn't know. He doesn't lock his door because he's never known privacy in his life. Right. There's one sequence in this, which I think is amazing where, um, the girl that he's interested in, uh, her blind mother comes up into his room um, and this scene is amazing, and I could it, I could tell that it was ripped straight into the Hannibal series, both in Red Dragon the book and obviously Manhunter's film, where he watches those films of the families while yeah. the blind woman who he's you know sort of seeing at the time. Um, oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. So it, it has that same aspect to it where he starts with the playing the snuff footage because he's really excited to rewatch and see what he got. Mm. Um, but there's the mother is sitting in the back of his sort of like uh, workshop area and you can kind of just see her under the lighting that Powell is kind of set up there, but then he hears something and then he pulls out the big light and spotlights it on her. Um, and he just lets the film run and the mother is asking him to describe what the film is because she's a little skeptical of his relationship with her daughter Um, and you, she can tell that he is sort of like upset or, uh, excited and a little disturbed by the footage that he's watching. And he is kind of a nice guy. So he's not going to lie to her and tell her what he's actually watching (laughs) or like, you know, what he's not watching. Um, so there's like this weird thing that builds up where like the mom kind of knows what's going on, mm-hmm. but she probably, you know, not entirely, but she hears his reaction and it has one of my favorite shots in the entire movie, which is an over the shoulder dirty shot of the mom reaching <coughs> out to him and then superimposed. I don't know actually how he got this shot in the sixties, but uh, then she's reaching out to him and it's a behind the head shot of him and the projection of the woman's face in terror is on his back and it's yeah. cutting her yeah. face off. So you just kind of like see her eyeball open up wide and then it's him freaking out, realizing that the footage isn't right. Being like, I love, I love that they included her character because it's sort of, um, she, the fact that she's blind makes her sort of invincible in a way that points to how like, seeing in this movie like it's all about seeing it mm-hmm. yes it's about killing it's about sex it's about you know the psychology but it's a specifically sort of manifested through this idea that looking and seeing is violent mm-hmm. and the fact mm-hmm. that she can't see what he's looking at 
means that she's like he doesn't have to worry about her tattling on him and therefore she has a kind of power over him where I, 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 I haven't quite worked it out in my mind like what no the there's something about to- that too because uh, uh, like later in that scene when he realizes that the footage is is wrong again I think he says that it's just it fades out a little too early yeah. because he was so excited by the actual act of the killing that he wasn't paying attention to his composition and his lensing anymore <laughs> yeah. yeah damn you know when that happens so the footage I hate it uh, so the, the footage ends up not working and then he immediately goes holy shit I need another face I need another thing to go and he's so disheartened because he thought he was done like he he feels like he wants to move on from this project and be with this right. woman but then he's like i need another one now because you know for some sort complete of, my project some yeah. sort of ocd aspect to this <laughs> um and he tries to kill um right. the mother but he can't and i think it's partially because obviously he you know uh, w- with you know he he has already started to have relationships with her as a possible mother-in-law situation. Yeah. So I so I think, he, I think he's already right, right. so that's part of it. But at the same time, it's also I don't think that she can give that look to him, even though she's scared. Right. She right. just doesn't. Right. It, it's not the same experience. Well, but, and spo- I don't know how much we want to spoil. Oh, go but, full spoilers. Oh yeah, full spoilers. Full spoilers. Yeah. Okay. Well, you find out at the end that the camera apparatus that he has set up. Um, is attached to a mirror so that his victims can see themselves die. Right. And that's, that's what he wants to capture. He wants to capture the fear in the eye of somebody who's seeing themselves die. And so she can't do that. She can't see herself die. So she's not going to give him the full gratification that he's looking for of ultimate fear, what he mm. perceives yeah. as being the greatest fear possible. This is like one of the best lines in the movie. Uh, it's it's I think it's when he's revealing that he shows, you know, their their face through the mirror so that he like they they yeah. see Which themselves. is an amazing shot when he does that by the yeah. way where you see he sort of like, like the distorted face of right. the girl that he's interested in kind of like in the in the mirror on the camera there. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And then the, his line is if death has a face, they saw that too. And you're just like, that, that's a whole other <laughs> level of horrifying, you know? Oh, yeah. He didn't just want oh. the, the, the kill. He wanted to the, the fear of watching their own death. And that's just, it, you know, to just add another, another layer horrifying to it. Well, element and, to and it. And I was going to say, and also think about how obsessed he is sometimes with capturing people's reactions to corpses, right. which yes. he does multiple times yeah. in the films as well. I think one of my, right. one of the when, best scenes is in the set when he kills. Yeah. We didn't even uh, talk about that. Yeah. We, he kills Moira and throws her into the trunk. And there's this amazing set piece that takes place on the set, which by the way, uh, I, I love just sort of like the reality the of, of this set life. And oh, the director's yeah. awesome. He's yeah. so funny. Like he's an asshole, but I, he's so funny. I, I love that bit where he's sitting in the room and he's going, you know what? This scene needs more comedy. And immediately <laughs> he rounds everyone up and he just starts shooting pickups to put, co- like not even reshooting the scenes or rewriting the scenes so the comedy makes sense. Just sh- <laughs> shooting com- new comedic scenes that he can intersplice into yeah. what he's already shot, which is just a hilarious way, to, lazy way to approach it. But another one of my favorite parts from that director is when he, uh, when the girl sees the body, she screams and faints. And before that, she was trying to do a scene where she screams and faints and was failing miserably. Yeah. And so when she <laughs> He does it successfully this time. He's like, oh, now she gives it to me. That, that whole thing. I got to say, that was another thing that surprised me about this film is within those scenes, there's a lot of comedy. 
Like, oh, yeah. Like, yes. it's actually quite funny at times. Well, and, and I was yeah. surprised by that. And think about how a lot of it is kind of, like, weird, like, set mistreatment. Y- yeah, uh, yeah. And, as well. It's which all is, mistreating the actresses. It yeah. Seems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, because, again, he's tying the relationship to the people who have an interest in expressing themselves through right. film. And mm-hmm. people who, you know, who get into positions of power to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, again, this is all sort of interconnected uh, in that way. But I do think that that scene where he tries to shoot comedy and he has the actress, just like, again, <laughs> he flubs this total garbage scene where they she just is asking the guy to keep bringing out different colored trunks. What about this colored trunk? And then they bring out the trunk. And I love that bit where it's like, he's like, wow, this trunk is a little it's heavier. Really heavy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another, like... That's and that's very dark humor. And oh, I yeah. imagine for 1960, yeah, I guess it's that pretty, would really it's be pretty shocking. morbid. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, then another part where they set that up, and then later where she's doing, she's they switch it to hats so that the actress <laughs> can not be so traumatized. But she's but still as soon traumatized. she gets to the blue hat, she runs screaming out of the room. It's like, and once again, you know that the reason is completely horrifying, but yeah. he somehow still makes it very funny in, in a way. Too. Well, yeah, and they, they brought an onset psychoanalyst <laughs> to help her oh, yeah. out. And, and, and they were like, they were like, Doug, we, we hired you. What can we do here? And he was like, honestly, guys, she just she's going to need more than 30 minutes to like recover from <laughs> yeah. seeing a corpse on set. <laughs> that's really yeah. all you can do. Give her some time. Yeah. For a movie that's all about the male gaze and sort of like the violence of the male gaze, this movie is really pretty, uh, pretty nuanced in its treatment of like female subjectivity. Because like these women yeah. who are like victimized because they are putting their bodies on camera, you see them feel you see them uh as people even though you know maybe the the film director and the uh murderous protagonist (laughs) don't necessarily see them as fully realized humans until you know he meets helen and then that's right and and i think that's what this movie is is realizing though is his realization of that it is is powell investigating the idea of people you know, inherently when you're filming people, you are kind of reducing them in some way. And yeah, then sure. yeah, again, his film is wrestling with this idea of, yeah, but a lot of these people are real people, which honestly makes them more horrifying when you're sitting there thinking about it. Um, yeah. Because again, and I think that the key to the film is that scene with, with, with Moira where she's dancing around and she's just a lovely person and you're just yeah. sitting there watching her live out her dream. Like you can just tell she wants to be a stage actress. She wants to be a dancer. You can see her doing this. Well, simultaneously knowing and, how this scene will weaponizing that dream and that vulnerability as a way to entrap her. Yeah. And, the, and yeah. that's the dramatic crux of that scene. And you as an audience member are engaged in that. So you, you're just sitting there waiting for it. And again, like that, that sort of push and pull of the inherent excitement of like the visual vocabulary of that suspense. And then you realizing how icky that is that you're getting excited about this yeah. right. um, is is really like to me, that's like the crux of this film and why I think a lot of people, you know, felt really uncomfortable about it. Speaking of which, I did want to highlight this one review of the film. Is this an older review? <laughs> yes, this is a film, awesome. a review that came out at the these. time, which I thought was so <laughs> severe. I had to laugh about it. But Len Mosley writing about this film, because, again, this was uh, basically panned across the board yeah um to the point so where not many people, people said this was this unethical one. people yeah. said it was awful they said that it should be you know people should boycott it like they said everything under and you watch it now it's funny because we've seen so many films like this. it's so it's tame, like, it seems tame comparison. yeah um but len mosley writing about it for the daily express said that the film was more nauseating and depressing than the leper colonies of east pakistan <laughs> 
fucking analogy. Jesus. <laughs> I read that Holy and I was shit. like, Jesus Christ. Dude, that is scathing. <laughs> it feels a little <laughs> offensive to the leper it's colonies of specific, East Pakistan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's weirdly specific. Well said. Oh my god! Yeah, that's and so funny. and uh, you know, that's it, terrible. The film itself, because you know, Powell is a very accomplished filmmaker, has really just stood the test of time. And I mean, Martin Scorsese obviously goes hugely to bat for this film, and I think that he kind of described it as sort of like the uh, he described it as you know everything you would ever need to know about sort of filmmaking and filmmakers. Um, yes. And it shows the the aggression of the camera, how the camera sort of like violates inherently its subjects. Yes. Um, and that through this film, you know, you can kind of, you know, see what it is that draws people to that violation. Like you have to, again, you just have to realize that you are, you know, sort of taboo violating something in some capacity. But at the same time, there is an allure to that. And obviously anyone who goes into a movie theater because they like movies in some sense probably understands that allure, getting a glimpse into other people's lives. Um, And then obviously you throw in things like, you know, abuse, trauma, sexual repression, sadomasochism, voyeurism, the idea (laughs) of uh, fear and trying to photograph and reduce the very idea of fear in the first place. Uh, And you just get one crazy movie. I'll be honest with you. Oh, yeah. For 1960, I think this is, I think, one of the favorite films that I've seen from the 1960s now, having finally actually seen it. I was actually quite blown away with this one um, yeah, I'm right overall. Uh, and I think uh, angling towards the reductive rating round, which for you, Maddie, is uh, we strip all the words, all the nuance, we reduce the movie between a number between one and five, but at the same time, this also kind of turned to like closing statements. So if there's any scenes, any lines of dialogue, or any sort of like final uh, things that you wanted to touch upon that we haven't yet, this is the part to do it. But for me, I'm going to be honest, I'm going with yeah. the five on this one. Nice. Um, I really did love this and the fact that it sort of like predates slasher it predates a lot of giallo and it takes you know sort of themes that hitchcock was after with ideas of voyeurism i mean we've talked hitchcock uh once or twice so far on the show uh we did vertigo was kind of like our big one that we did but obviously hitchcock was a director who also investigated the idea of voyeurism but i think that Powell here kind of takes the implicit sort of like pitiful psychological perversity of those characters and just Mm -hmm. really foregrounds it and investigates it in a way that does separate itself. And again, the fact that, you know, people lauded Hitchcock and rejected this leads me to believe that this might even be more uncomfortable and more thorny in ways that, you know, maybe some people don't find as interesting. I could see someone thinking it's, uh, it's still kind of corny, but, uh, for me, I found honestly very, very, um, rewarding, um, watching this. Um, and, and the way that he, um, sort of equates his desire and trauma into kind of also like a death wish because we didn't get to touch on the big finale, which I probably will now, but like the big finale where he feels so much pain and he finally reveals all of his pain to someone. The mother earlier in the film says, at some point you're going to have to talk to someone about this because just expressing yourself through your work is not healthy because especially if your work is murdering women. Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But so, so he finally expresses himself to someone as a person um, and he reveals his documentary 
um, that he's been filming, which is sort of taking on his dad's experiments on fear. And that's why he's been sort of collecting all of these different images of women in terror. And the final image is of himself where he sets the, the spiked tripod up again. Uh, also spiked knife tripod. Yeah. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, little, phallic, little phallic, little uncomfortable still <laughs> when he's stabbing women with it, but watching him sort of like stab himself with it and capture his own fear again, while also listening to all the pre-recorded footage of all of the women screaming as well and as the footage and <laughs> himself. Yes. That's the crazy part. That final image where it shows the newspaper or uh, it shows the note that she left him about from one camera to another that that needs you or something like that, like yeah. one camera that needs another camera, uh, you know, sort of hinting at a possible future with her. Um, while it pans up to the image of him having basically slit his own throat using his own camera, capturing his own fear and the history <laughs> of all his pain and trauma as he's revealed it to her. And it's so sad too. Right before it, he tells Ellen that he's afraid. Yeah. So it's yep. just like yeah. there's so much sadness. Yeah, it's finale. really yeah. depressing. Yeah. Uh, to watch. People were probably shocked. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get it. Especially that finale because uh, it's just so it's visceral too. You know, it's aggressive. Yeah. It's very uh, mm-hmm. it's violent. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 crazy. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that's that's why it gets the five for me. For you, Jamie. Man, I think I'm going with the five now. Yeah. Yeah, the conversation, I was with the just super high four. It was kind of on that. It's, it's it one on of those typical line. on the cusp, and the second watch probably would have got me there. But mm-hmm. I, I just, after this conversation, I just, I don't really see flaws. You know, I, I, I think, I think especially Hear for Hear that, the British year, critics from the 1960s? Yeah, wrong. <laughs> we got gotcha you in 2019, baby. Um, but no, it's, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Um I just couldn't believe really what I was watching because it felt like what we've seen in these in the horror movies because they're influenced by this obviously. But what we've seen in like these seventies, eighties slasher films, and now I'm watching it on in nineteen sixty on mm-hmm. the dot, and I just mm-hmm. I didn't know that this. I feel like existed. I was watching the birth of Brian De Palma. While yeah, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> no, I, that would be exactly what I'm trying to say. Like spot on. Um, I was just shocked at this. I had no idea that this kind of a film was was released in 1960. I, I'm, I'm just very blown away. Uh, does and it, by, by a way, prestigious filmmaker who right. ended his career to do it. Yeah, it was like, like it's got everything. <laughs> it's got everything. Um, like does a guy, a guy know, who shot like Technicolor classics. Right. And he was like, yeah. do you know what? Does one of the sleaziest <laughs> 1960s horror movies I've ever seen in my life. And probably <laughs> might be the sleaziest, at least in uh, uh, this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, does anyone know? I'm yeah. I'm gonna give it a five, by the way. But does anybody know of the the actor, the lead actor uh, that plays Mark? So I was reading about him today, and I don't think he. I think he was internationally famous for this movie. I don't okay. think he did much. Because I was curious like, if like did it ruin his career too, kind of thing. Or? Well, I know he went on to be in Fassbender's Fox and Friends, okay. Fox and His mm-hmm. Friends. Um, but I'm pretty sure it was a small role because I can't remember him in that movie. But also, uh, because I hadn't seen this film yet, so maybe now if I go back maybe and rewatch that one, yeah. I'll recognize him now. But yeah, he seemed like he was kind of just like a, a, a very little-known German actor. Wow. Um, and uh, I feel like he probably might have harmed his own career with this film, Which even though sucks, he's very good should, in it. Yeah, this should have <laughs> shot him in the start of. It's unbelievable. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to just awesome. stick with the five here. Yeah, For you, Maddie. I'm going to give it a five. Um, Ooh, perfect and scores. 
across. Yeah, congrats, Peeping Tom. <laughs> um, I'm so I'll just highlight a few reasons why. Um, one is that I love. I love a genre movie that is big on ideas. Like I, I love a genre movie that is just stuffed to the gills with ideas. Maybe yeah. too much so. Like I, <laughs> I, I like a big messy um, movie that's asking a lot of questions while also hewing to the tradition of a genre. In this case, like a thriller, horror, slasher genre, or in this case, maybe uh, initiating a genre. Yeah. Um, but like it's just so it's so clear that Powell has all these ideas, these visual ideas. You know, it was this, the script was not written by him, but he took this the concept of this story and just went to town with it. And I I love that. I love um, I, I love even when even in cases where uh, that ambition may not come to fruition and and the the sort of um, the end result feels like a failure. I still tend to be on the side of those movies. Like I, this year I was a big fan of under the silver lake, which I think is Great in film. many ways. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's big like fans big over mess, here. Big, big, big mess and kind of a failure maybe, but I love it. I just love it. And um, so this movie I think uh, is, it's a big ideas genre movie. And also I am a huge sucker for, mid-century depictions of Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, that's just something that... Like, it's got the, everything. The, yeah, completely. It's all there. And it's very... I mean, it's it's a little over the top because it's got that the, that one psychoanalyst uh, in the film um, who's, who's kind of a caricature, but also there's this really poignant moment that's also kind of hilarious where um, where he's... Let's see... Mark is talking, yes, okay, it's, it's towards the end. It's one of the last scenes. Mark is talking to the psychoanalyst on the set and is asking him about scopophilia, which is this, you know, the fetish, uh, basically voyeurism, which he has identified himself as having. Right, so it's sort of like that, that sort of like aesthetic pleasure, right? The idea yes. of like, um, uh, like, like that bit that we talked about where he wants to really badly, he has an urge to like film that actress's reaction to the corpse. Right. So, right. so much so that he's willing to like, pull his camera out on set and like <laughs> almost implicate himself. Yeah. That, that's right. how much the urge is there for him. So it, it even goes beyond voyeurism. It's like, there's right. another layer to it there. Right. And it is like a, it's like an erotic obsession and mm-hmm. it's to the point where it's compulsive and it's like, and he's very, he's asking this analyst, like how, is there any way to cure yourself of this condition of scopophilia? And the psychoanalyst says, well, yes, certainly all it takes is, Two or three years of psychoanalysis three times a week for an hour a session. And you can just see on Mark's face, like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> I'd rather I just can't... make my films. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I guess I'm not getting out of this one. And so then, and then that's sort of the moment of despair where he then goes on to decide that that's it. You know, I'm not getting any better, so I might as well go all in. Yeah. And, like, it's this, it's it's hilarious. And, of course, nowadays when we're, you know getting getting adequate care for all kinds of health concerns can be a real obstacle i just found that moment really kind of jarring and and (laughs) emotional and i love that it was this it was just very rooted in like the practical reality of trying to get help for a psychological problem in 1960 you know yeah for sure yeah so anyway i give it a five 
Yeah, he was like, nah, instead, I'm just going to go back to murdering women. <laughs> hey, feels that sounds easier. like a lot of time, man. Feels like, a, feel, feels like an easy way to overcome this problem that I have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I, I did really think that it was interesting actually watching this, that there was actually very little nudity in this film. Is there any? Yeah. No, I, I don't I think, think there are in like, there, you can see in the pictures in the background like when oh, they go yeah. into the stores but there's no yeah. uh women on screen that that show it they're just in like kind of like uh lingerie sometimes yeah because right. I, I i did find it interesting that they thought it was so scandalous and when when really it's really it's the psychology that's kind of scandalous yeah not the actual right. film itself that much sometimes yeah it's because it makes you feel gross like that one girl when she turns around to be taking photographs of her in like her lingerie and it it focuses on her like facial disfigurement for a second yeah like clearly like that is more interesting to him than like her naked body yeah i just remembered a line of dialogue too it was the blonde woman that Mm. was one of the models and she was like uh she's she was telling mark can you shoot it so that it hides the bruises right so so there's even implications of like domestic violence and stuff and that's that's just that's one line and and, and again talking about shading in these women's lives so even in the underlying dialogue there's a lot of just gross you know Mm. stuff that's going on so yeah very interesting it's it's so good (laughs) so yeah triple five across the board yeah triple five perfect go peeping tom i was very glad to finally (laughs) kick this off the watch list because i've been honestly it's been like years and years i've just kept kicking the can down the road uh i was glad to finally hit it but moving on i think we are going to jump into we're gonna unleash the cage yeah we're gonna unleash the cage here (laughs) we are gonna jump into what does uh snuff footage and voyeurism kind of look like uh, yeah. directed by Joel Schumacher, Schumacher. <laughs> and starring Nicolas Cage. So let's do it. Eight millimeter. Let's do it. Gonna be okay. There is no going back. No! Nicolas Cage. I'm trying to understand! Wherever you were, just forget about it. I can't. There's no one left to finish this but me. Eight millimeter. A film by Joel Schumacher. All right, we are back and we are talking eight millimeter, the 1999 crime mystery sort of horror film directed by Joel Schumacher and written by uh, Andrew Kevin Walker. Um, who I don't think I've seen much of him lately, but he was Mm. very well known for writing the screenplay for Seven. Oh, Oh, (laughs) I did not make that connection. Yes, so he wrote Seven, and actually, uh, to sort of paint a picture for you here, 8mm originally was supposed to be directed by David Fincher. Oh, oh, really? So if you're wondering why Robert Elswit was attached to this film, that was partially why. <laughs> okay. Uh, Robert Elswit, by the way, uh, PTA cinematographer, one of the best living cinematographers, he shot this film. It is a very good looking film. Joel yeah. Schumacher is a very interesting choice of director, though. Yeah. Uh, and I know that since this only, film... I think I've only seen his Batman movies, so I don't... Well, weirdly enough, he actually is not a terrible fit for this movie, because before no, he did yeah. those Batman movies, he actually was well-known for doing kind of like, uh, you know, sort of uniquely unhinged uh, did he do a lot of genre and crime films. Though? And I mean, he did The Lost Boys. He did okay. Falling Down. 
which okay, is like yeah. sort of like one of the pinnacles of sort of like male angst and rage, right. uh, sort of psychic collapse. Um, he also did the nineties flatliners. <laughs> yeah, um, I've heard about God, that. The dude did, uh, like courtroom dramas, like, uh, a lot of John Grisham. Lot of John Grisham. I think what shocked me the most just watching this though, because I only really saw the Batman films and I knew of him. I did know lost boys, stuff like that, but like having scenes where, you know, a nurse puts, a, a, a something in a dude's butt a bunch of times I was not <laughs> expecting to see at a Joel Schumacher so clearly I didn't know where this guy came from at all but right this has got to be a sleaziest right it, it's up there and I think yeah. I think part of it is that um obviously Walker as a screenwriter is very interested in some sleazy subjects I mean seven yeah is, oh, you yeah. know one of the uh, most well-known serial killer films and he sort of takes that here to a, a bit of a different level by tying in, you know, actual film to it and and and, and footage, even though it still kind of has a bit of like a pulpy pre- premise of a sort of private investigator trying to hunt down a woman who was found in snuff footage to see, you know, if she's real, if this actually is real snuff footage, right. um, things like that. But since this film's release, uh, Andrew Kevin Walker has since said that this is not his screenplay. Um, <laughs> a, lot, a lot was changed. He said that Joel Schumacher and um, whoever Joel Schumacher brought on with him, I guess some sort of producer, maybe another co-writer, yeah. uh, he said that they basically rewrote it to the point where he has uh, sort of disavowed this film from his career. Oh, wow. Um, mm. sa- same, way that Cam- he- same way that Cameron did with Rambo First Blood Part Two, which we were yeah, talking yeah. about not that long ago. Did he just, get into specifics at all? Like what no, was doing there are no specifics out there. He basically just said that he wrote the film. He was talking about doing it with Fincher after the, the success of Seven. Um, and I think Fincher ended up doing, I can't remember if he did the game instead or he did, um, he did, there was another film that he did in the late nineties that I can't remember exactly which one it is. Fincher ended up obviously being busy and Joel Schumacher wasn't his choice. And then Joel, Joel Schumacher rewrote the draft of the script to make it his own film. Okay. Um, so that's all we know for sure. But I would say that that, that seems accurate to me. This movie feels to me. Like, the guy who wrote Seven wrote a screenplay, and then Joel yeah. Schumacher rewrote it and directed it. <laughs> took, yeah. just, that's kind of what it ran. feels like while you're watching it. Yeah. Uh, even though there are some interesting ideas, and there are lots of this film that I, I do think work. Uh, I, I do think that on, you know, as Maddie was kind of saying, she likes to be intellectually engaged with a lot of these films. Uh-huh. I feel like there's a little bit less of that going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah this, this film is sort of like gesturing at intellectual stuff without actually caring about it very much right yeah yeah it's definitely a a depiction of an underground community that doesn't seem that interested in the community like there's there's very little characterizations of the community except for joaquin phoenix who by the way i do think is one of the best parts of the film and there should have been more of that fantastic i I agree like i like like nicholas cage originally being turned off by him as like the worst lowly you know terrible well yeah that's just that's just it like at certain points you might be only finding that depending on these films but like it's it's like we know who watches porn and that's a lot of people (laughs) so you know i know this is more on the extreme side but you know that's also popular yeah and and i feel like you could also just get more into the community aspect of it or have nicholas cage kind of 
uh, I think William Friedkin, for example, gets around this in a really unique way with cruising, yeah. which is a film mm-hmm. I thought about a lot watching this film because I love cruising and it also has a similar vibe of, you know, a character but going into a scene that they're made uncomfortable by. It's like there's some dangerous things here, but these are still people that, uh, that, that are, you know, engaged. Well, in- yeah. And I was like, and it also helps that Al Pacino's character in that film is genuinely intrigued by the community. And he's like, right. this is something right. I haven't seen before. This is exactly. something right. I'm interested in. Right. And whereas he- Nick Cage is more just like trying to solve the, the, the mystery, he has no but, interest. but he has no interest in any of the community, the people he's no. just kind of like, he, he kind of sees them all as scum. It's well, yeah, he has well, no, he has yeah. no, no empathy for the community that he's investigating, right. which is just very different because that is the, the journey that Al Pacino you know, goes on in yes. cruising. Because yeah. um, which- in this movie, it's kind of just like, as the father of a daughter, I am outraged that you could hurt women in this way. And it's like, okay, so <laughs> is that all? Like, is that the only, is that why you care about carrying well, out this righteous crusade? Okay. Well, well, and, and it's also a little weird because they don't actually establish his relationship with his daughter or his family that right. well. Uh, I mean, well, uh, the, the kid's a baby, so you well, know, yeah. you're not, not going to be like, like yeah. catch has, or whatever. He has that <laughs> defensive <laughs> mechanism with with his child, but even like the the his wife, they don't have too much besides just kind of the typical like, you know, the wife is worried about him because of the job he does, and he's just reassuring her that everything's going to be okay. And that he I'm not in her. too deep this time, yeah, honey. and that he loves well, her. And, you know, it's, it's very the, surface level, and it shows them having like super vanilla missionary sex in their <laughs> marital bed. And it's like, this guy is on the straight and narrow. This guy's a good guy who doesn't watch porn, who doesn't have kinks, who doesn't do any of that freaky shit. And yeah. then, like, that doesn't change. Like, he, uh, like that's, that's another difference from cruising. He's, like, not affected by uh, what he dives into. He's horrified by it and disgusted by it. But he yeah. doesn't, like, well, sort of buy into into it at all yeah no because i i think you're right and as we get into the sort of later bits of the film i think there is an interesting development that they kind of make with him that's, and then yeah. they fuck it up see that's <laughs> that's what i i felt like they were starting to kind of dive into that yes. but they didn't want to go full throttle on it because they didn't want nick cage to become unlikable or some shit like that yeah where it's like, does that really matter to this film yeah. we're, we're watching a film about snuff films yeah explicitly like uh or in particular snuff films in which uh women are uh raped essentially and then killed yeah so it's like there's sort of like a bondage rape aspect to it and then they butcher them on on the film and some of the the sequences of him watching the film are actually pretty pretty horror that's where i got that because i was it it reminded me of this uh or not reminded me it gave me this thought that it's like if you walked in the room while nick cage was drinking in his muscle shirt watching all these snuff films you would just assume that this guy's really enjoying all these snuff films (laughs) and that's kind of the vibe i was getting a bit where it was like he was watching them over and over again so just watching him watch those gave me this vibe where he might be diving into it now it's just it never gets there you know? well, right. yeah, and, and, right. and there is something kind of like inherently sort of, uh, I, I would say, like engaging or troubling about the idea of just snuff footage in general. I think yeah, it's kind absolutely. of using the subject itself uh, as kind of like a like uh, I wouldn't say it's doing a whole lot interesting with it, but like inherently the idea is kind of just scary. Um, yeah. And and the way that, again, if we're tying this into Peeping Tom, like the way that you know, sort of, again, Nick Cage watching that footage, but then also there's a lot of talk about sort of, like, the means of production for that. Like, yeah. like at one point, he's basically a producer for porn. Yeah. He's kind of like, you gotta get the machine, and I'll pay for it, 
and here's the warehouse. You yeah. Know? Like he starts producing essentially. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think personally one of my favorite scenes in the film is when they, they, they finally, so the basic plot, he's after this woman who's possibly been killed in a snuff film and it takes him to Los Angeles. And when he gets there, he's he also run- hired by like an old rich lady. Yeah. Yes. Who found the snuff and footage in her husband's in her, safe when he dies. Mansion, yeah. yeah. And that's really important because the, the other thing, the other aspect of this movie, that, the thing that I think is maybe at the heart of this movie is its interest in financing and how, <laughs> how movies get financed and specifically, uh, how, the perversions of the rich and powerful sort of trickle down through the people who need to make a living by catering to Mm -hmm. the rich and powerful and how it's like this whole seedy, destructive, violent industry exists because of the twisted minds of a few people who hold a lot of money and power. People who can afford to be like, what experiences haven't I had yet? (laughs) Yeah. 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 And like it doesn't delve at all into the psychology of the people who might want to watch these films, and that's like part of why it doesn't seem to uh, want Nick Cage's character to ever come even close to being sort of intrigued by yeah. this film. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just not interested in psychology. It's just saying, okay, there are these evil sickos at the top, <laughs> and their perversions just trickle down and poison the rest of us. You know? Yeah, but I I do think that. Th- the one scene I think that really works is when he's teamed up with Joaquin Phoenix, when he's uh, paying him to kind of like guide him through the sort of like LA porn and perversion scene. There's mm-hmm. one amazing, hilarious moment where they, uh, Joaquin Phoenix walks them into like kind of like a, a sort of like, uh, sort of, it, it looks like kind of like a Mexican run club looking <laughs> for it. And he goes, uh, say casa, uh, snuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just thought was like that's good stuff. Just it, it, it I mean, especially Joaquin Phoenix in like his dyed hair, his crop top, his leather pants. It's just yeah. it's so funny. It's so no, well he's, done. He's perfect, and in he's this so film. good in yeah. this movie. And I think my, one of my favorite moments is with him, which is when they they finally think that they found a place where they are paying for snuff footage. Um, and they sit down and both of them together go into a private room where they put the tapes in and they're watching the tapes and they think that they're watching actual snuff films. I think that they finally found like the place to do it where there's, they found the distribution network and they're horrified and the footage is really gross. They show it to you and everything, the sort of like butchering of this woman. Um, and then immediately they put up the second one and they realize that it's the same woman being murdered and that it's fake. <laughs> and Nicolas Cage go, fuck, it's fake. Yeah. And it's so funny watching Joaquin Phoenix, who is like covering his mouth. He's horrified. And then he's like, wow, oh boy, that's great. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> it's fake. And now I can like the it. The magic yeah. of you know, cinema. And I think he even says something like, oh, snuff film two, the revenge. Or something <laughs> like that too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like there, there, there's a moment where like his horror all of a sudden becomes excitement now that there's that distance of oh it's, it's not, real. not real yeah 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 that is which, interesting which i think actually is an interesting idea when, that, when you get into the you know the fact that people who are really into genre films jamie and i yeah. a lot of the time investigate ourselves as the idea that we might be bad people we don't know uh, <laughs> yeah. So. yeah exactly <laughs> well and that's about i mean that is that is maybe the one um the one sort of avenue that this movie is kind of interested in is the question of like if, if the thing that's titillating about a snuff film is that it's real, what then what does it mean to try and figure out if something is a real snuff film? And why does it matter other than, you know, like, 
it matters whether or not this girl is alive or dead, but it also matters whether or not this dead rich guy actually paid to have an actual snuff film made. And it, like, if he's really that thick or if, you know, it, and like, it's, yeah. a, it's about authenticity and about like what's fake and what's real. And I don't know. That's, I, I think, uh, well, yeah. And, and, and maybe I'm, maybe no, no, I know. I, I think you're right. And I think that scene gets at that because of their reactions to their, it's yeah. the same footage. Yeah. Like right, they are still exactly. reacting to the same footage, but just the idea of it being real or fake makes their reactions completely different. Also right? having yeah. they're engaging go, with it on a different also level. Also having Cage be disappointed that it's fake because which is not, a, right. I thought they're hilarious. And I think moment. that that's the and one like, thing dude. that Schumacher <laughs> did because instead of having Cage dive into the actual community itself, it's instead he just dives into the case too yeah. much. You know, he does that instead. He be just becomes too dedicated as a detective to the point where he he's wants disappointed to see, that there's yeah, he not actually snuff wants footage. to see the snuff footage because he's like, <laughs> right. that means his case is, you know, it's cracking. He's cracking the cracking the code. Right. Um, another thing though, with Joaquin Phoenix and, and they never do anything with it, unfortunately, is that they have a lot of lines with Phoenix to cage about how it's like, uh, you know, if you dance with the devil, he'll get you, that kind of thing, which mm-hmm. would imply right. that as Cage goes further into this scene that he's going to become overwhelmed by it or he's going to like it or whatever, but then it right. never happens. But they do have dialogue that hints that that's going to happen, well, because, yeah, but then it just never does. As we kind of pivot to the, to the second half of the film where you know Joaquin Phoenix and Nick Cage kind of do get get deeper there there is an interesting structure i found to this yeah where i actually thought the movie was kind of ending like an hour and 15 minutes yes. into the movie. me too yes. um because it's wrapping up to the big climax and i do think that the decision to have that last half hour is super interesting mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. it, they don't actually investigate it but the idea was there which yeah. leads me to believe that maybe it was in the original screenplay that things got a little grimmer yeah. but the fact that because instead, the it's sort like of typical of the finale of this film Cage starts at like an hour ten. Brought to the violence of the films, right? Yeah, it's just they they get rid of anything that was the, the sexual aspect of it. Well, the thing that's just interesting is that they they at the hour mark they have him start wrapping up the film. He's he's starting to close in on the people actually responsible. James Gandolfini yeah. makes an appearance as like a really gross casting director. With uh, the crossbow? Yeah. With no, no, no. He's the <laughs> totally casting director. underutilized. Uh, James. Oh, it's um. Uh, Peter Peter Stromor is the guy. Oh, with the crossbow. With the crossbow, okay, okay. who is the porn director. By the way, <laughs> ni- named Dino Velvet. Just an amazing name. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, he, he also has a lot of like satanic, like occultist imagery. In, yeah. in his in his place, which I yeah, think they is have awesome. uh, the the upside down pentagram on their yeah. hands. Like, yeah. All of them have it tattooed on them. So they're obviously you know, they're satanists or whatever. <laughs> I have to say, his office was a feat of production design. I fucking love that that piece in his like production offices oh yeah and everything's just like neon lit and stuff yeah yeah it's great i also loved uh the fact they they add because because cage is trying to act like this super fan so when the guy's like can you name any of my films and then (laughs) phoenix the one that's actually in the scene kind of saves his ass and he's just like i really liked this i'm not sure and then they start getting into which ones are more violent and why they like them more and stuff i thought that 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 uh, scene was pretty good, yeah. 
Well, yeah, and Cage kind of just piggybacks. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, because there's there's one spot I can't remember I- exactly what he says, but there's one part where he actually compliments like his craft, yeah. and he's just <laughs> yeah. like really amazing, like mise en scène, and like, that. like <laughs> yeah. it's not like it's not that line, but like it's it, it's it something along well the, it's something along those lines where he's like complimenting him on like his choice of photography as a director and stuff like that. Yeah, but like Nick and Cage, Stormare loves it. Well, yeah, and it's so funny because Cage is like delivering it so blankly yeah. that like yeah. he very clearly doesn't it, like he's never seen any of this stuff like it's so obvious specific it's just these kind of general yeah right and and it is really funny because obviously he does end up getting entrapped by Stromer. they kind of realize that this guy is kind of a bit of a a a bit of a fake um and you build to what you think is the climax of the film where they have joaquin phoenix posted up uh like sort of crucified-esque with on on like a like a, a crossbow target um and they are uh the sort of the pornographers and the casting directors start to realize that some of their footage that they recorded for real has gotten out into the world. So they asked Nick Cage to bring it in so they can kind of like burn it. Um, and uh, Stromer gets a really great line where he's like, if there's no honor amongst perverts and pornographers. <laughs> yeah, then what do we do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's just like, there's no legality here. I can't take you to court for fucking me over. Yeah. All we have is honor. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also love his, his little performance. It's just creepy and adds this really gross uh, thing about his character is when he's threatening Cage mm-hmm. with his like family as well as Joaquin Phoenix. And when he does it, he just eats the family photo. He puts it <laughs> in his mouth. I just thought that that was such a weird character thing for him to do. It's just creepy. Yeah, like, and He's like, he, I'm going to kill your family. And then puts the photo in his mouth. <laughs> and then pops it back out for no reason. It's just a weird, creepy thing to do. He, and he, he completely commits to it. Oh, it's yeah. Beautiful. It's great. He chooses those scenes. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was one of my favorite parts of this whole whole movie, for sure. Yeah, he's, he's barely in it, like in a yeah. in a sense. It's well, like yeah, a, because there, there's him, there's James Gandolfini as casting director, and then there's kind of like his performer slash abuser of the film. The they call him the monster, I think. Uh, the machine. The, the machine. machine. Yeah. The machine. That's what they call him. The machine. Uh, and yeah, people <laughs> in the '90s had a real crazy. Th- like they were really terrified of people in like leather gear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was just a thing. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like a, a big '90s thing. Yeah, big '90s thing. Uh, you also get a brief glimpse in this moment of like early what where cage was going a little bit a little yeah when he starts to the, freak out a why? little why why yeah absolutely. Why? Yeah. <laughs> why did you want the footage of the girl being <laughs> butchered <laughs> why oh so good honestly Love that was maybe, that might have been my biggest disappointment in this movie is that cage had to play it so straight yeah. i wish he could have let loose a little more well that's see what i thought it was gonna it was gonna lead to that and it and it kind of does not really but he has moments where he gets to Eddie eventually, and he and he has to kill Eddie because yeah, well we'll get to that because that's a hell of a fucking scene. <laughs> well, yeah, well because he gets a little unhinged by this whole situation, especially because when he brings the footage back, and obviously he doesn't want to give them the footage. Like Joaquin Phoenix gets murdered right in front of him, yeah. which is actually really yeah. sad because oh, yeah. he, he's like the one character you've really latched onto in this yeah. movie as like just like good person who's right. just trying yeah. to make it in the, in the scene. He's just like you know, honestly, I wasn't super into this stuff. I just you know I. 
got a job here and kind of like it. And I've just been here the whole yeah, time. He was, since. Just, he was trying to be I kind of like the people. Yeah. yeah. Like, he was reading in cold blood. Got yeah, reading, reading true crime behind his, his, his pornography book that he's got, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is, which is pretty funny. Um, but Nick Cage gets a little unhinged. And I think this is the part that I found the most interesting because I actually think the set piece, Joel Schumacher does a pretty good job on that shootout set piece where mm-hmm. Nick Cage is like sort of like handcuffed and he's trying to get the one bullet back into his gun yeah. Uh, yeah. as, as uh, sort of like the the different sort of crews in this underground snuff uh, uh, photography group start to like pick each other off and he's sort of like put the seeds of disruption into them and stuff like that. They start disagreeing about how like the one lawyer uh, screwed them out of money in the deal to pay the rich guy for the snuff footage, which again, they say he just did because he could, which is actually kind of a scary idea. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He's he's just bored. That's just, uh, that's the only reason he's got the money. Some, some girl's life ended in this horrifying footage is out in the world because he just was bored. That's all it was. Um, but this transition from this finale, because you think that this is building up to the finale, where Cage kills all the guys, he solves the mystery, he goes back, he's done. But there's still like 40 minutes left in this movie. And I was like, yeah. what the fuck is What, what yeah, else what could you, you do, do with now? 40 minutes? <laughs> and I thought that this was the most engaged I was finally in this movie, because I thought that set piece was well done. I thought yeah. the Joaquin Phoenix thing was actually kind of affecting when he died. Yeah. Um, and then I thought it was about to get really interesting because Cage goes on full revenge mission, like murderous revenge. I also love how they how they shoot it because he's he's with his family and and the and the wife is like, we might not be here when you get back, like basically saying we'll yeah. leave you. And yeah. and then instantly, as soon as he goes, I'm leaving. It cuts to him in L.A. just kicking the shit out of Eddie, basically. Yeah. <laughs> like it, there's like no time to show him traveling to L.A. It's just. He's now in LA and he just starts kicking the ass of Eddie and he's just, where's the stuff? All that. It's, it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. And it's he, effective though. It's not like I didn't laugh at it or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I, yeah. I just thought it was interesting that they don't give you like any time between that. Those no, two because he sees that he has to kill off James Gandolfini's character and he has to kill off the machine or else he won't sort of have closure on the situation with these guys out there right. possibly making more film. And I do think that the sequence where he kills James Gandolfini is actually pretty like horrifying. Yeah, um, I, I will say though, I it's it wasn't once again it wasn't like a laughing thing where I was laughing at the film. It's just such an outrageous moment when he doesn't quite have the the will to do it. So he goes yeah. out and calls the mother <laughs> of Mary, who is the girl that was murdered and and raped, and he goes. He's, he asks her if if she wants the truth or the lie. She says the truth, and she and he tells her what happened. And then he is like, "Do you give me permission to kill this man?" Like yeah. as in like he needs the permission from the mother, and he's using his rage and her rage at the loss of her daughter yeah. as an excuse to kill a human being. And that yeah. is what I've been looking for throughout this whole movie. That's yeah. good shit right there. That's yeah. like well, I mean, outrageous. It's funny though, because that's like the, that is the movie being so fully committed to keeping him a good guy that it yes. won't even let him own his own rage. He needs yeah. to get permission to kill. <laughs> yeah. Like, he yeah. can't even, right. it's just weird. It's just like, Ugh. this. he's supposed to be like, he, he's so moral that he is not swayed by hardcore porn and he is not willing to kill this murderer until he's gotten the blessing of the mother of the woman that he, I don't know. It's just like a, it's, he's like a purist. He's like a real, like a real, uh, just very 
particular guy. Yeah, see, I, I, I think that that's what the film was aiming for, that it was trying to, yeah. you know, sort of keep him. Like, like I, I think he when they were... tame until that moment. Well, no, I, I think what they were hoping in the writing of that moment was to keep him being a good person. Yeah. Uh, because oh, he, even be, as he kills Because Eddie. he's doing it for a righteous reason. But I think it's interesting that the effect of the movie, I don't think has, like, I don't think that actually works on you. What, yeah. What, 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 I, what I think it actually does I is, think it makes it more complicated unknowingly. Yes, I think I yeah. think that they accidentally achieved something interesting there <laughs> because all, all that they ended up actually doing Schumacher. was showing you that the real rage was there. The desire no, right. to brutally kill that person was there. Yep. And he's yep. looking for any, any excuse, excuse to, do to actually do it. That's yeah. what I got from it. That's why I liked the scene. But you're no, right that a, Joel that's... might not have implied that at all. like, Or, or well, that like... he didn't want that to be the case. You know what I mean? Yeah, it does seem yeah. like he wants Nick Cage to be liked. Yes, like, like it seems like in the screenplay that yes. that is des- supposed to be designed to let him off the hook. Right. But weirdly enough, the effect of the way that it's filmed, it yes. doesn't because it's still a really gruesome death when he bashes that dude's head in and then oh, lights yeah. him on fire and, and Nick Cage he, is like unhinged at that I guess, point a I guess you could argue he, the reason he does the bashing is because they mentioned before that if he kills him with the bullet, he'd have to take the bullet out because yeah. they know. But right. I still it's still like more to think primal, was, though. That's what I got from it. I'm like, it's yeah. more primal. Although now I'm Beat him with a club. It's style. probably a bit strategic, but I still want to think of it as more of a primal moment. So yeah. I'm going. Yeah. To. <laughs> no, I like I like this. I like this reading a lot. That it's like this is. Um, it's not so much that he's a good guy and he needed permission. It's that he, uh, his like, his moral framework on the world meant that he needed like the loosest <laughs> excuse possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He needed some way of tapping into this rage that was already overpowering, but that he just had yeah. suppressed. And, you it's know, just that line, give me permission. Yeah. I you know, love it. It's yeah. like, dude, you could do it by yourself. The whole, give me permission. Yeah, you, you, thing. you could just already do it. Yeah. 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 It's, right. It really sort of, brings and a he's whole commanding other it. He's it. like, give me. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's like permission. weeping and so angry. And yeah, it's uh Good performance, but, too. But where I think it falters is in the next sequence. Because oh, okay. in the next sequence, he kills, he finally gets to kill the, the machine. Oh, right, um, right. And, yeah, that was, yeah. And, and this sequence, I think, ends up being less interesting. <laughs> they tackle him through a window so they can fight in a cemetery. <laughs> Again, I, I found this whole <laughs> idea of Nick Cage just being done and finally just letting go of, yeah. uh, and, and just wanting to... Like, just, just the vengeance? Yeah, just yeah. the vengeance. I thought that the, the having this in the screenplay at all was like weirdly interesting. And then they just had to have the guy say the theme of the movie. The whole, oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, dude, you, you were so close. You, you were so close. <laughs> To having him brutally kill the machine, and then the machine pulls his mask off, and he's just like, what? What did you expect, a monster? I'm a fucking person, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, "This okay, this is the stupidest movie I've ever seen now. Like, that was my reaction to that scene, where I was I was genuinely into it, and then all of a sudden, it just, it, it didn't, because again- It didn't ruin it for me, but I did get like a whole eye roll thing, you know, well, where it was just kind of like, this, it's not necessary to spell it out. We've already, like, we've seen your two-hour film. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I'm there with you, Joel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I just think that it, it's like it's again, it's an interesting idea. Yeah, and yeah. the film, you know, it like like it kind of works, 
and but then he just had to spell it out for well, you. Well, they have to have this conversation in in dialogue where right. uh, where it just kind of like throws it off, where they're sort of engaging with it in dialogue and sort of like in a way that's self aware, kind of like takes that power away from it a little yeah. bit. Yeah, and also I just don't imagine like you're in the middle of a fight for your life, and this this machine guy is going to take the time to express all of the reasons he's been doing this. You know, it just, it's, it, it comes off as like a supervillain moment kind of thing. Yeah, which and is the a really of, weird and thing And the rest of the film doesn't have that at all. So it's mm-hmm. just weird that they give this whole, you know, moment to the machine. And you're like, well, the machine was like the killer, but he was never the center of this film or anything like that. So it just felt a little odd. Yeah, I just remember watching that sequence and being like, "Oh, he's gonna like kill this guy." And what would be what would be m- more interesting is if they didn't have that entire set piece where he's like, yeah. "Oh, this dude's a sick freak." Like, what yeah. if he just went to his apartment? And he didn't recognize him because he was just a normal looking guy, and yeah. then all of a sudden he's, like he's just, just like, in a cardigan. Reading. And then yeah, <laughs> and he's like, and you know, and they didn't have a conversation. He just goes up and kills a normal person. Yeah, I, yeah. I would have been like, "Wow, there's your scene." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. But. Instead, again, they kind of have to give him this weird out where the guy acts like a monster the entire right. movie. And, it's, and, not and, then like, he, and then he pulls it off and he's like, ha JK, and, I was a person. Yeah, not to mention <laughs> the setting, too. I mean, we're in a cemetery. It's raining. Mm-hmm. It's at night. You know, they're just, they're they're pushing it a little too hard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to up, like, this, like, weird sort of, like, melodramatic action scene version of this yeah, scene yeah. where really he could have undercut it and restrained it by just having him go up and killing like a normal dad or something like that yeah, and being like, sure. holy shit, that was just a normal guy. See, that, yeah, that would have been devastating too. The guy didn't have a family or anything yeah. either. No. So it's like, and not, it's like, I know that just makes it sound sick, yeah. but it would have been effective but given it, the movie It would have watched. been an actual test for Nicolas Cage yes, as a character. exactly. Going he's up and a family killing, man. Yeah. See, we're writing this Go, shit. <laughs> going up and just killing this guy. Let's who, rewrite this movie. Who's like been a freak the entire movie and then at the last second is like, haha, I'm not a freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like You're, at the very least, they should have had the mother stay home from church so that she had to be confronted by the fact that her son was this... Uh, machine <laughs> like yeah that, yeah that felt like a total cop-out that she's like all right sweetie i'll see you later and then cage goes in that's, and that's true it's like they didn't want to have an extra layer of depressing you know motives or whatever it is like it's yeah. like they didn't want that scene that well, gives the, the see, extra that, that's what punch. that's what leads me to believe that give me mer- me permission thing was like more accidental yeah absolutely Um, absolutely because because again it it doesn't feel like they were really leaning into the messiness of what cage is doing Uh Um, right and maybe maybe that's a performance thing honestly maybe that really was born out of his performance which seems plausible to me yeah Yeah, i'm i'm not totally sure but i i just i just was thinking about it and i i had you know like a a lot of films i was thinking about like watching this i thought obviously a little bit about manhunter again uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit about cruising and seven even a little bit of plansky's uh the ninth gate oh that we watched yeah i thought thought a little bit about that one dude a hundred percent but when i was when i when i was thinking of this in comparison to seven and i was thinking about what Fincher does with that movie where he ties the heroes with the killer in a way that's like really uncomfortable where like Mm. Morgan Freeman is established to have like this kind of like apathy for the world. And eventually what they're doing is catching a guy who has like cosmic brain apathy. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And how that film ends by kind of like giving you the apathetic guy's pitch 
in a way that's you know not entirely unconvincing. I'm not. I mean, I'm not. Wouldn't say I empathize with Kevin Spacey's character in that film, but I would say that he gives him a chance to state his case. And yeah. I think Morgan Freeman is not. You know, feels similar things uh, earlier on in the film. So right. it kind of ties its heroes with the killer in a way that's kind of like gross and complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just interesting that this kind of like threatens to get sort of like genuinely gross and perverse in that kind of way. And to kind of tie cage in with his revenge mission with kind of like the sort of horror and violence that he's been sort of uh, exploring throughout the film. Yeah. Um, And then instead, you know, again, he has to have this moral quandary where he's, he gets permission to kill. Uh, He needs to know that it's moral. We even um, have that ending with the letter. Like, that's the worst part, Offender, for me, is where, yeah, he receives closure and forgiveness for all of the stuff that he, all of the violence that he ended up doing. Because he was the yep. only one that cared. Yeah, and, and he's <laughs> God just God damn like, it, Josh. And he's like, God, God damn it, I'm going to look at my <laughs> wife and she's going to know and she's going to forgive me yep. for everything that I did. For the murders. And- because I got forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why we were doing accents there, but. Uh, <laughs> we were getting to the scene, man. I was, I was living it. Yeah, so even <laughs> even though that, you know, permission thing is still sort of undercut by the way that the sequence works itself, I I just sat here going, man, they they every they chance they got, they yeah. they seemed like they were too afraid to explore the connection yeah. between the cops and the crooks and yeah. the way that a lot of these great crime films does. Like Manhunter, like you can still be tasteful. <laughs> yeah. Like Manhunter is and have you know, a genuine interest in the psychology of, you know, sort of like the, the cops and crooks going on there. So, and taking it to a horror extreme like this does. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was like my general feelings on that. I think angling towards reductive rating around this one gets like a solid three for me, I would say. Yeah. I think that this is like, there's interesting stuff happening in this. There are ideas here. For sure. I think that some of them are a little undercut and some of them are a little underexplored. But there's good sequencing. I think that shootout in the in sort of like the the porn shoot is well done. I think Walking Phoenix is like amazing for every bit that he's on screen. Yeah, I he's loved his really character. incredible. Um, yeah. This gestures towards thornier ideas that it it almost delivers on <laughs> in some accidental ways or you know maybe some intentional ways um and that's I, the thing I, it never do, seems to know what it's if it's accidental or intentional yeah and i i will give a shout out to sort of like the production design team on this and and robert elswit too the cinematographer they do give this like a really kind of like scuzzy oh yeah gritty um, sort of like disgusting vibe to it every so often that I do think kind of like works. Like there's a lot of dirt and grime. Um, yeah, yeah. Like I feel I, like being on one of those sets, you just get grime on your clothes. It does feel like <laughs> one of those films. Which yeah, I appreciate. yeah. So like you know, I I think that there is a lot to like here. So there's no way that I couldn't like like this film. Um, but I, I I do think that uh, in in a long tradition of films that are rewritten. Uh, it, it was rewritten to kind of mute a lot of the things that might have been more interesting and complicated about it. Which seemed like they're de- they were definitely there because there's it, too many hints. The structure not, is yeah. there. Yeah. Like how yeah. how do you go full blown? A half hour, the last half hour of this movie is Nick Cage going full like exploitation revenge movie. Yeah. And, and and once again, they set up all those warnings with with phoenix where they're like don't dance with the devil if you go too far man it's gonna all that shit and then nothing happens from it yeah damn so So, close so the the fact that again they really just had to go full pedal to the metal with nicholas cage doing gruesome killings yeah um and instead they they kind of chose 
ways to mute that, which just kind of sucks. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but still still definitely a watchable film if a tiny bit long. Um, yeah, maybe, because of that, even though I do, like, I do that like structure, the, yeah. the whole when I thought the movie was over and realized there was another thirty minutes, it ended up being quite effective. Yeah, it, the 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 last like five minutes are very <laughs> effective, but we'll just ignore that. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also gonna give it a three. Uh, it's just it's it's a very messy film. You know, it's got some good ideas, and then it has some ideas that seem like they'll be good, but they never go for them, or mm. really, or at least fully. Uh, Nick Cage. Although good, I was hoping for just a bit more of the cage, you know? Uh, I was hoping for more of the scene where he's, like, asking, why did you do it? Why did you kill her? That kind of stuff. I just love him doing that. Uh, and this film seemed like it could have really worked with that. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm going to give it a three. And, uh, it, it, once again, maybe a messy film, but it's, it's entertaining. And the, the aesthetic, like, the look of it is fantastic. I mean, this looks like a very gritty, dark grimy film so yeah one one detail i wanted to point out before we wrap up especially uh while they're watching the snuff films in like sort of like the under like that scene where him and joaquin are watching the fake snuff films mm -hmm. there's an amazing detail where there is a cum streak going down <laughs> the tv that's oh, we're watching like, oh, i didn't even notice that <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah oh which is God. just such a gross detail you know, that some respect, you know, <laughs> <laughs> respect, Schumacher. <laughs> yeah. You'll love to see it. Yeah. Um, but for you, Maddie. <laughs> you know, I was going to go with three, but just to, to be different, I'm going to bump it up to a 3.5. Um, nice. Just out of respect for the power trio of Joaquin and Gandolfini and Peter Stormare. Because I think they all give really entertaining performances. Yeah. And I think that, the as you were saying, uh, Josh, the fact that the production design in particular and the way that the film is shot um, sort of make up for the script's lack of interest <laughs> in the, the world in which it's set. Like it... The, the 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 porn the hardcore setting sort of feels tacked on to the story but it is the but as far as world building goes we are immersed in this world in a way that is really satisfying so I, I'm gonna give it a three point five yeah nice. no that's totally fair that's pretty, that that may be where where I will be leaning closer to on on rewatches now that I kind of like know the flaws of the film and kind of yeah. know the yeah. film that I'm looking at although I will say I was as Jamie and we've said a couple times I was really thrilled by the fact that you think you're in the third act and then all of a sudden there's 40 minutes left and you're like Whoa. yeah I was genuinely curious as to where the hell they were yeah I was like it. freaking out when I when I saw that I was going what could they do yeah like, uh, not, as, like not, not as interesting as where my brain was going but uh, right not so some entertainment to be had not 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 terrible you know um, but yeah, I think that that will wrap it up for this week's show. That was Peeping Tom from 1960 and 8mm from 1999. Thanks so much for bringing these films with you, Maddie. Yeah, oh, thank you awesome. so much for having me. No problem. This, this uh, was a total blast. <laughs> if you've got anything to plug, Maddie, this is the place to do it. Oh, gosh. Um, well, it's... Uh this is a long ways off, but uh, at Film at Lincoln Center, we have an annual Scary Movies Film Festival that um, I'm very privileged to work on. And if you're a fan of this podcast, I imagine you might be a fan of scary movies generally. <laughs> and so uh, if you live in New York, you should uh, come and see the stuff we program. It's, uh, it's in August. Have you uh, got annually. anything cool? 
Uh, so this past so year was a lot of fun. This is all in the past now, but we did had the world premiere of the Midsummer Director's Cut, and Ooh, uh, awesome. as well, and we had did a double feature of Grizzly and Prophecy, which was a lot of fun. Two kind of bear movies. Um, <laughs> sounds interesting. Which, that sounds like a double yeah. feature we would be interested in down yeah. the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I recommend it. If you, uh, you Clearly, you guys appreciate a good double feature. So, um, Yeah, and then I have no idea what next year's going to look like, but I'm sure we'll have fun. So. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I wish that we were in New York and we could attend. <laughs> but anyone who is in New York, definitely check out uh, film at Lincoln Center because there's a lot of guy- things that you guys program over there that I'm like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> Super jealous. <laughs> really wish I could be there. Um, but for our listeners, in one week's time, we're going to be back with a bonus episode for you guys. And it is time. It is. Uh, there is a release of a certain sequel to a certain film <laughs> that people have been asking about for a long time. And we are a horror movie podcast and we have put it off for two years now. Yeah. So, uh, so it's time. Uh, it's Kubrick time, baby. We are doing the shining, the big one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about the shining in conjunction with the release of Dr. Sleep by Mike Flanagan, the sort of like purported sequel to the shining. Um, although, uh, it has an interesting, uh, sort of, uh, relationship because it has to both be a sequel to Stephen King's book and also his movie, which are, uh, as we, know and we'll get into next week are two different beasts um so we'll see how that works out but we are going to be pairing it with uh, a personal choice for me here one film i discovered just last year that i uh really latched onto and was surprised there was not like more of a kaffa about because i thought it has a really amazing finale oh and that is the australian version of the shining (laughs) (laughs) whoa next of kin um it is uh an absolutely amazing film about a incredible woman score too. with an incredible score from, awesome from score. Klaus Klaus. I forget his last name already, but the, the member of Tangerine dream who sort of pioneered sort of synth scores and synth sounds. Um, so it is a really awesome film that I don't really want to get too deep into because the finale, uh, I, is better discussed on the actual episode itself, oh, absolutely. but it's got a final 15 minutes that are some of my favorite of any horror film. So we'll be getting into that as well as the shining the next week's bonus episode. Again, patreon.com slash podcast for that one. And in two weeks time, we are going to be, uh, back with, uh, a guest, uh, speaking of Australia, we're going to be having three time friend of the show, Andrew Law, nice. on, host of the Buta Vista Socialist Club Andrew's podcast. He is coming back, and he is bringing with him two horror films to sort of continue on our sp- Spooktober. Even by then, we are going to be moving into November at that point. <laughs> but we love this, it so this much. This is how it happens. Uh, but he is bringing on with him Night of the Creeps, which is uh, one that I haven't seen, but it's got a great title. Yeah. So I'm pretty stoked about that. Uh, it is a 1986 film, I believe. And then we are going to be pairing it with another film called Dead Heat. Cool. Again, no goddamn clue, but I trust Andrew two, on this. Andrew previously are these Australian films again? I don't think they're Australian, oh, okay. but previously he brought on uh the Wild Boar movie. Which one was that one called? A uh, Razorback. Razorback. Yeah, that was pretty sweet. And he brought on Long Weekend. Yeah, and, that was great. Uh, so I, I trust Andrew with selecting some sort of like deep cut genre films for us. So Absolutely. Uh, that's what you can expect in two weeks' time. That being said, I think that will wrap it up for the week. Thanks as always for listening and uh keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. Bye.